and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm your host and moderator, Scott Miller, and each week, as you know, we invite a different guest to join you, both visibly and audibly, because our podcast is both in video and audio form around the broad topic of leadership. Can you believe now we are into our third year of this podcast with nearly 150 interviews taped? And to each of you that are subscribing, listening, championing us, rating us, reviewing us, we are grateful for your loyalty and your interest in the On Leadership podcast. Now, we have a broad array of guests that join us on topics surrounding leadership. We've had Dan Pink, of course, the prolific author, talk about our peaks, our troughs, our valleys, and our timing. Of course, Seth Godin on marketing. Nancy Duarte on visuals and messaging. Let's see, Donald Miller, right, on how to build a brand. We've had Stephanie McMahon also talking about a brand. Doris Kearns Goodwin, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, and General McChrystal talking about the history of leadership complimented by numerous of Franklin Covey's thought leaders, Stephen M. R. Covey on trust, Chris McChesney on strategy execution, Ann Chow and Pamela Fuller on unconscious bias, Corey Kogan, Lena Renee on time management and loyalty, Todd Davis, our chief people officer on building a culture of relationships, all of these topics that surround the core topic of leadership. Which brings me to today's interview, which is squarely on the pragmatic aspect of being a leader. And I've invited a guest today who's written a book called Cracking the Leadership Code. His name is Alain Hunkins, and he's joining us from Massachusetts. Alain, welcome to On Leadership. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you. Well, your book is superb. You've got close to four decades of real, pragmatic, in-the-trenches leadership experience. You also are a prolific TED Talk. Um, a host, you are a podcaster, you speak around the nation, you consult. I'm delighted to have you here today to, um, to trip me up. Your parents decided to have a little bit of a twist on the Americanized version of what I would say Alan. Would you properly pronounce your first name so all of our guests and listeners can realize what an idiot I am throughout the next 45 <laughs> minutes when I slaughter it? <laughs> Yeah, so got, my name is Alain, so it's the French name. My mother is from Brussels, Belgium, and she gave me one of the most common names you'll find in a French-speaking country, which is great if you're in a French country. Not so easy when you grow up in Flushing, Queens, where I grew up, but it is Alain. <laughs> well, it's great to see you again. Uh, you and I have been in communication for some time. I'm a big fan of your work and your book. I think I'm most a fan of the leadership lessons that you bring because of, again, the, the, just the pragmatism that you've experienced in your professional career as a leader. And I'm guessing some of our listeners and viewers are wondering, why am I not interviewing a Franklin Covey expert on leadership? Well, we have enormous expertise. You are a fan of ours. But the fact of the matter is, we don't claim to know everything. And I think it's always nice to have someone come on and share a different perspective on the same leadership principle. So today we're going to talk about your book, Cracking the Leadership Code. Before we get into some of your key thoughts around leadership, I'd like you to reorient our listeners and viewers to your own professional leadership journey. Sure, Scott. So for me, I have always been a fan of people. I think it really is rooted in why do people do what they do? And when I was an undergrad, like many people, I studied many things, went to a liberal arts school, studied psychology, actually got really involved in theater as well, and went on and unusually went to graduate school in an acting conservatory. So I have an MFA in theater where there you put yourself under the microscope, but really had this desire to make a difference in the world because I thought the arts did that. 
Well, as you probably know, being an actor is a tough life and the impact can be challenging. So I ended up doing arts and education work, which led me to doing leadership training in schools using arts and education. A friend of mine said, have you ever thought about doing any work in businesses? And I hadn't thought about it. He said, come with me to the local association, the Association of Training and Development Conference chapter meeting. So I went and went to that. And from there, basically, I read, this is 1997, their job hotline, which there was no internet. So I called up and I heard this story about a training company looking for employees, facilitators. And I didn't even know what training companies were, corporate training companies. And lo and behold, short story, I got hired by the company and started working in 1997, doing leadership and management training all over the world. And what I found was, as I kept working with more and more groups, I kept seeing these same patterns of behavior is that all these leaders had certain things in common. The great ones had things in common and the lousy ones had things in common as well. And what I found was I started taking notes because there were stories and examples that kept showing up, different stories, but the same principles underneath. And so I started taking notes and those notes turned into blogs and those blogs ended up turning into chapters, which is now this book, Cracking the Leadership Code. So for me, it's really been rooted in trying to understand what motivates human behavior and how can we unleash the potential in people. I know from our developing friendship that one of the reasons you had such a strong interest earlier in life in psychology and in um, theater came from your upbringing with your mother and your grandmother. I'd like to invite all of our, our listeners and viewers to check in for a few moments as you hopefully will share a little bit of what developed that interest in you and some of the fear and experiences in early life that, um, that, that um, drove that. Yeah, happy to, Scott. So it's interesting because if you think about all of us, our, the first organization that we have an experience in is our family. And so it turns out I had a fairly unusual childhood. Of course, I didn't know that at the time because you just think what you go through is normal. So I was raised in New York City. That's not unusual. I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother. Again, not that unusual. The unusual part is that both my mother and my grandmother are Holocaust survivors. So I mentioned my mo- before that my mom's from Brussels, Belgium. So she's born in 1935 in Brussels, Belgium, right be- before the outbreak of World War II, which started in 1939. And because they're Jewish, suddenly they are being hunted literally for their lives. And so when Belgium was invaded by the Nazis in 1942, there was something called the Belgian underground, where basically many children were taken away from their families and put into hiding. So my mother, and it's so hard to conceive because, you know, I'm a father myself, and just the idea that my mother is six and a half or seven years old, and she's put into hiding, and she doesn't know where her mother is. She's given a fake name. She's given a false identity that she needs to memorize. She has her hair dyed blonde. She's moved from living in a convent to living with different foster families, never sure when she'll ever see her family, if ever again. And that was her experience for four years. And while that was going on, my grandmother, who was working and trying to stay alive and surviving, she actually was arrested right towards the end of the war. And she was actually put in a camp called Malin. It's a concentration camp, which is the holding camp where the troop trains go from Malin to Auschwitz. And it turns out that she arrived at Malin literally 
two weeks after the final transport left for Auschwitz. So basically she missed that train, train by two weeks, which saved her life. She was liberated from there. And miraculously, my mother and my grandmother were reunited at the end of the war in a displaced persons camp. So all of which to say, you can imagine that that wartime experience of having been separated from each other completely shaped their life experience, their experience of the world, and certainly their experience of how they raised me. So I'm born in 1968 in Flushing, Queens, in you know, the 60s in the USA, and I've got these two Holocaust survivors who basically have lived through hell. And they, so you can imagine the beliefs they had around how much do you trust yeah. other people, yeah. right? And so I was literally told when I was growing up, I was told by my mother, never share any more information than anyone ever asks of you because that was the world she had come from. And so what was amazing about this whole experience, Scott, was, you know, I didn't know that this was different. What I did know that is when I went to school or went to my friends' houses, the vibe, the environment, the culture, right? The organizational culture was so different than it was at home. And I didn't know why. And of course, a five or a six or an eight-year-old wouldn't know why. But I did have this deep sensitivity to understanding that both my mother and my grandmother were suffering from post-traumatic stress. I wouldn't have called it that then, of course, but I just felt that vibe. And so I think there's a part of my interest in human behavior and psychology has been this quest to reconcile my upbringing with other things. So that's really where, where that shaped my passion for wanting to help people to emerge. I know I think back to my grandmother and, you know, people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said to me, you know, whatever you want to be, be happy. And I think she realized that she could never be happy, but that was the gift she wanted me to have. And so as I look in my own life, I'm always use her as the measure of well, things are OK. Like I look through what I've been asked to do through coronavirus pandemic, like I, I can cope with this, you know, yeah. not going out, you know, just being an, I can cope with this. So that has definitely shaped a lot of my experience. Other people's pain is definitely a great uh, perspective shaper. Uh, horrific story, beautifully told. Is your mother still alive? She is. She's 85 years old. She lives near my brother in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I, and I call her every day now because uh, with the pandemic, we, so we are talking every day and it's just, it's great to connect with her still. Alon, thanks for sharing that story. Uh, I sure. opened and introduced you as one of the most pragmatic leadership advisors and teachers that I know, which is why you're on today, because your book is just chock full of great insights, most of which I can relate to. Um, you're a great storyteller, as you just um, uh, uh, evidenced with the story of your, of your um, mother and grandmother. I'd like you to open and talk about one of your first leadership experiences was at a New York City not-for-profit, where you were in the line to become a leader, and there are some really insightful lessons that all of us can, can learn from that as great leaders. Would you recreate the story and the lesson out of that early not-for-profit experience? Yeah, sure, sure. So as I said, my passion has been around leadership development. So I got myself involved with a not-for-profit leadership development organization in New York City. And I had been volunteering. I've been involved for about three years, super excited about the mission, the passion of, of the program. And after three years, the executive director stepped down and I thought, all right, I'm 29. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and, and step up to be the new executive director. And so the way it worked was there was an annual meeting where you had to be elected. So there would be a vote 
And I thought in my mind, I am a shoe in for this job. I am the super volunteer. Who else can touch me? And so it turned out there was only one other person who stepped up for the role of executive director. And his name is Gary. And I thought, oh, Gary's been around. He'd been around maybe four months. So I've been around three years. Clearly, I was the right person for the job. So we had this election. And in my mind, I get there. All's good. So the votes are all cast. The ballots are counted. And they reveal final score. The votes, 33 to 6. And the first instant, I'm like, yes, I crushed it. And then I heard that actually Gary had gotten the 33 votes. And I was the one that got crushed. And I was devastated. I went home with my tail between my legs and it took me over a month before I could reach out to Gary and talk about it because I was so just embarrassed about the whole thing. So Gary and I met up for lunch and sort of offhandedly I said, so did you know you'd get all those votes? And he said, well, of course I did. And he was dead serious. I said, you did? How? He said, well, I asked. You see, I went around and I started connecting with people and meeting them for coffee or for lunch and asking them about their lives and why they were involved in the organization. And then I asked them what they would do if they were the executive director. And then we talked about how I had this vision for the organization and would they be part of my team as we move forward? Now, as Gary was saying all this, there were three things that went through my head all at the same time. The first was he asked, you can ask, right? You can actually ask people for that. Uh, the second one was, I hadn't ever thought to do any of that. And then I realized that what Gary had modeled in this was he had demonstrated what I've come to call the three secrets of building strong leaders. The first thing was connection. He actually reached out to people and built real relationships with them. So I had expected that my good work would speak for itself and that people should just know that, that I was entitled to the job because I'd been around longer than him. So first was connection. The next thing was he was communicating and specifically he was leading by listening. So he wasn't telling people that he was gonna be in charge and tell them what to do. He was listening to them and really aligning his vision and messaging based on what they were saying. And then the third is around collaboration is how could we work together and form this team to make things happen. So it really boiled down to learning these big lessons around connection, communication, and collaboration. I think one of the insights of the story in the book was that not only did he ask for people's support and vote, he really brought a level of listening and inclusion because he said, you know, can, I, can you envision working with me and what, what is your contribution and imagine, envision the team that we will build. He had that vote locked up long before the election, did he not? He did. I mean, yeah, I mean, he knew that people were coming because he had included, he had created this team in advance. And the election was just an afterthought in some ways because they were already enrolled. And so he understood the importance of inclusive leadership. Absolutely. Let's belabor that point for just a minute. Uh, the book is titled Cracking the Leadership Code. As you mentioned, your premise is kind of these three C's, connection and communication and collaboration. We'll talk more about each of those. I, I love in the beginning of the book, you quote Dale Carnegie, of course, sort of the father of our industry, if you will. And here's what Dale says. You can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Kind of reminds me of the Jim Collins quote, you know, spend less time being interesting and more time 
being interested. Expand on why that's so important as a leader to sort of turn that spotlight off of you and to have your interest be in them as you're building connection, collaboration, communication. This whole idea of ultimately, we all want to be the heroes in our own story, in our lives. We don't want to be bit players in someone else's story. And so leaders have to realize it's not about you. It's about the people that you're leading and what they want more than anything else. Because what do we want as humans is we want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want to be heard. We want our input. We want to be valued. So this human to human connection of actually taking the time. Well, you know, as Dr. Covey puts in the seven habits, seek first to understand, then to be understood. We want to be understood. So as leaders should seek first to understand in that way, it draws people out. And the other thing it does is as you do that as leaders, people believe that you are worth following and it creates a level of psychological safety and yeah. trust. Yeah. So thereby, people feel freed up to share their input and lean into stuff, which is so important, you know, because we live in this knowledge work age where, you know, and I write about this in the book about, you know, leadership, the primary thing, it was based on an industrial age model where people were assembly line workers. And as Henry Ford famously said, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? That is not the world we live in anymore. And unfortunately, too many leaders think, well, I'm in charge, so do as I say. That is an industrial age mindset. And if you bring that forward, you're destined to fail. You just, you can't succeed. Not in a world where we have transparency, where people have choices. I mean, between things like LinkedIn and Glassdoor, people aren't gonna put up with lousy leadership anymore. And so the ability to draw people out and hear their stories and find out how can you align your story with their story? How can you align your vision with their vision? That's when you start to harness things. I mean, you know, the famous quote about Lao Tzu said years ago, thousands of years ago, whereas, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, he said, you know, the good, pe the good leaders people admire. The bad leaders people despise, but the best leaders are the ones where the people said, we did it ourselves. And to me, really, this mindset is about shifting leadership from a paradigm of being the commander in chief to being the facilitator in chief. Now, being the facilitator in chief doesn't mean that you don't have clear goals, you're not driven for performance, that you don't have objectives. It just means that how you work with other people is different because so many leaders who got into these leadership roles got there because we were high performers, right? We're right. achievers who wanted to get stuff done. Right. But there's this huge gap between being a high performer and facilitating high performance in others, different skill set. So that's why I see this as needing this facilitative mindset and becoming the facilitator in chief. Alain, we published a book recently called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. I happen to be privileged to be a co-author on that book. And the first critical practice is develop a leader's mindset. And the new effective mindset that we propose at Franklin Covey is that a leader's job is to achieve results with and through other people. When you view that as a facilitative mindset, your job is to achieve results with and through other people, you have to have empathy to make that happen. And you are 
obsessed, you're, 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 you're a, a scholar, um, a practitioner, I, I would guess, on this idea of empathy. We hear about it a lot. Dr. Covey wrote about habit five was the habit of empathic listening. Um, can empathy be taught? And how does a leader who maybe doesn't naturally have empathy, how can she or he develop their empathy skills? Sure. So empathy, it's so important. And it's interesting because some people think around empathy and they tend to go, oh, that sounds so touchy-feely, soft stuff. But, you know, there's a whole host of research that shows that empathic leaders and empathic organizations deliver bigger results. So first, let me give a, a level set here around a definition of empathy. So my working definition of empathy is showing people that you understand them and care how they feel. Now, as you hear that, intuitively, it sounds obvious. Like, I can do that. I do do that. Well, the research would show that while 92% of CEOs say that their organizations are empathetic, only 50% of employees in those organizations say their CEOs are empathetic. So there's this knowing-doing gap. Mm. So before we get into what we can do to become better empathizers, let's take a look at why is it so hard? Because on, the, on paper, it seems really simple, showing people you understand them and care how they feel. Well, to me, there's two big obstacles to empathy, especially in an organizational environment, impatience and fear. First, impatience. So if you think about it, showing people you understand them and care how they feel isn't some item I can just check off of my to-do list, like, oh, show empathy for Scott, check, done, next, move on. <laughs> we can't do that. So, you know, while information travels at the speed of light, human relationships are slower and showing empathy means showing patience. And so part of leadership wisdom is knowing when do you go fast and when do you go slow? Because so many of our organizations, in fact, we ascribe them as core competencies. We all have heard bias for action or drive for results. Now there's nothing wrong with that, except if when you're driving for results, you wind up driving over the people you're trying to help you deliver those results. So we have to know when to go fast and when to go slow. So that's impatience. The other big challenge is around fear. The fact is a lot of leaders in organizations are afraid of emotions in the workplace. I mean, Scott, I don't know about you, but I certainly have heard people say things like, oh, we have a check your feelings at the door policy here. And that was the thing. Like there was work and there was life and the two shall not meet. And you don't bring emotions into that because that's not professional. Welcome well, to 1990. <laughs> well, exactly. That's but that was the norm. And so we're again, we're living out these inherited leadership legacies. And the challenge with that is if you stop and think about it, you can't actually check your feelings at the door. I mean, what you end up doing is you suppress your feelings right. at the door. And, th and that's exactly what happens. You know, I think it was Deloitte did this really interesting study not long ago, and they found that 61% of American employees put on a mask, a, a, an emotional mask when they come to work because they don't feel they can be themselves. We've all heard the expression of bring your whole self to work. So these are a couple of things that really get in the way of empathy. So let's shift then to look at what are things that you can do to strengthen your empathy muscles. And the number one thing I would say is listen with purpose, which is a different way of listening than many of us do. It's not listening to respond or listening to tell people, no, we're not going that way, we're going this way. It's to listen with purpose, which means being open, being willing to take your agenda, put it to the side, park it, asking rich, deep, open-ended questions, and really trying to seek 
someone else's perspective, right? So understand their point of view and not just the concept, but what is driving it? What are the assumptions underneath? And if we start to cultivate that in terms of being curious, being open, I mean, I write about in the book about Satya Nadella has done this at Microsoft in terms of turning the Microsoft culture from a culture of self-described know-it-alls into a culture of learn-it-alls. So this is the work of Carol Dweck and mindset. It's all around being curious because realizing if we just operate from this know-it-all and have this tell, convince approach as opposed to a push, seek to understand approach, we're going to be missing out on so many of the valuable insights that people have for us. And in a knowledge work age, those insights are our competitive advantage. So I'd start by listening with purpose. Alon, what is the role that curiosity plays in building your empathy skills? Well, curiosity is key because until you get to a place of curiosity, you're ready to close things down. And if you look at the research around innovation, you know, where does innovation come from? It's from asking the questions of how can we do things differently in a new or better way? That's the nature, the core nature of innovation. So having curiosity is an approach to wondering and asking questions that draw things out. You know, one of the exercises I do when I have people practice cultivating curiosity is I have them get with a partner and they are going to ask the partner to think about something that you'd like to know about that you're an expert in. Now, I'm the expert. Let's say you ask me about rowing, okay? So I'm the expert at rowing, Scott. If I'm gonna sh share my expertise around rowing, I have to do it all through asking questions of you. I can't tell you anything. I have to just try to ask. And it's really challenging for people to do because they usually think, I'm an expert. Let me tell you what's going on. And that's the shortcut. And we have to realize as leaders, this is taking that coach-like approach, even though you might think it's more efficient to get to the end by saying, let me tell you this with my expertise. This is another shift in the mindset is that too often as these high achieving performers, we as leaders value efficiency over effectiveness. And sometimes telling people something, yeah, it might give you the answer quickly to use the old adage. You might be giving them that fish, but you haven't taught them how to fish. And so by being curious and having people come to things with their own appreciation and wonder and fascination and bringing their own thoughts, suddenly you have a much more engaged person who not just takes ownership of this particular solution, but starts thinking more broadly and systemically about how they can solve things into the future. So curiosity is key. Alain, you are a, a, an exceptional aggregator. I can tell you have studied the seven habits of highly effective people and that Dr. Covey has had an influence on you. Uh, Huge. Uh, kudos for your, for your knowledge and your practicality of it. You share in the book also, I think it was a research study conducted by a Salt Lake company, O.C. Tanner, where they said the number one reason why people leave their jobs is surprisingly lack of appreciation. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to talk about the role that experience plays in leadership and how important it is for leaders to deeply understand and get invested in leadership. What can leaders do to prevent this horrifying statistic that the number one reason people quit their jobs is because of a lack of appreciation? We hear this adage that people don't quit jobs, they quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. Yeah. We know that to be true. What can we do differently as leaders to make sure we're not part of that statistic? 
Yeah, great, great important thing to do. Well, the first thing is to notice, right? So this is the core, the core of emotional intelligence is self-awareness, but the next step is relationship awareness. So start to notice the people around you. And a big facet around this is, is your belief one that they should do this because that's their job. See that paradigm of just because it's their job, that doesn't need to be rewarded. That's kind of the same idea of you get a paycheck. That's your motivation. It's like we know that money doesn't motivate people in the same way as other things. So the first thing is notice what's going on and then it doesn't have to be huge. Now the, the goal, and there's a lot of research that says the number one motivating thing that keeps people moving forward is having a sense of progress. So finding these little wins around milestones, what are things that you can do to notice what is something someone did moving forward and call it out, be public, because what so many leaders do is, and the research would say, oh, I appreciate my people. Again, 85% are saying, I appreciate my people consistently, but only 20% are saying, I don't feel appreciated. So there's this gap. You need to be more overt in your appreciation. And the key to this is doing it not just more frequently, but the other key is specificity. And this is true around appreciation. It's true around giving feedback, is noticing things that people do and giving them specific appreciation over time. And being consistent, this needs to be a practice that you don't just do, oh, it's you know perf annual performance review time. Let me think back, what's something nice you did? Is that this should become a daily practice and part of your ongoing conversation. And all the research will show that people perform better when they are in a positive environment. And you don't create a positive environment by throwing huge gallons of positivity in it. It's really done one drip at a time. And if you do that consistently, it creates that environment. So appreciation is key to noticing it. And then also don't have to be a mind reader in terms of appreciation. Ask people, how would you like to be appreciated? You know, instead of just generic, different people like different things and more might mean more things to different people. So how are you doing that? So the key being present, noticing and starting to cultivate working on small little wins because the small stuff becomes the big stuff. Alon, I want to talk about experience as we finish our discussion today. You've had many careers over the course of your, gosh, 30 plus years professionally. You share a great story about your first day on the job. I think it was in the communications division at a large pharma company. Will you recreate that story for us and tell us what the key learning is there if it's not obvious. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. This is actually one of my clients named Tim. So yeah, Tim was working at a first day on the job and you can imagine, so Tim tells the story and it just made my head drop like, Tim, can I use your story? It's so good. So first day on the job and the person that hires Tim is supposed to meet him there and she's not there. And so he's waiting in the lobby. He checks in security and they have him just wait. And he's sitting in the lobby and waiting and waiting and 15, 20, 30 minutes goes by and it's like, what's going on? And finally, someone comes down and says, oh yeah, uh, Sheila wasn't able to come down. I'm here to meet you, let's go upstairs. So he gets upstairs and he says, okay, um, the first thing we have to do is we have to get you your security badge. And so they go back down and he waits for an hour and a half outside this door so he gets his ID badge so he can go in and out through the doors and he's waiting for an hour and a half. And then they bring him back upstairs like, oh great, um, IT is gonna come by and they're gonna set up your, you with a laptop. So just, um, I have some meetings to go to, so just sit. And he's basically put in a cubicle. Here, just sit here until IT comes by. 
he's waiting. He's just waiting and waiting. And finally, IT comes by and he was asking the IT guy who he said, the IT guy was really nice, but he really couldn't help me out with stuff. So this is all going on. And he's just waiting there. And then he's like, uh, where's the lunchroom? Where do I go for that? So he's just so after all of this goes on, you can see where this is going. <laughs> basically, uh, Tim goes home and he basically resigns the position that day. He's like, that was the worst experience of my life. I will, like, if that was the way they treated me on day one, I can't even imagine working here. So to me, like the, 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 the obvious point is that every single thing that we do matters. Every little piece. Now, any one of those things by itself may not have been a deal breaker, but the fact is, as leaders, we've all heard of the idea of the customer experience. We have to also consider what is the employee experience. And the employee experience is the sum total of all the touch points that our employees have with us personally, as well as with our organization. So what are we doing to make sure those touch points all are additive in a way that people walk away going at the end of the first day, oh my gosh, this is the best decision I've ever made and calling up their parents and calling up their friends and saying, let me tell you what happened here and then become your ambassadors and champions. Because you know, emotion, emotions are what drive human behavior. And as Maya Angelou famously said, right, people won't remember what you said or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And so as leaders, we have to realize, I don't care what industry you are in, you are in the human business. This is what we are, and we are in the humanity business. And so understanding how humanity operates and how humanity thrives is integral to your success as a leader. So well said. Every company is now a technology company, and everybody's in the same business. They're in the human business. Uh, this chapter is visceral. I don't know why I thought it was your experience. It was a client of yours. Yeah. But th that whole idea around focus on experience, not just your client experience, but in fact your employee experience, moves into one of the final points I wanna share here, and that is, as a leader, we should be recognizing what you call pivotal moments, right? Parts in, or peak moments, you call it, peak sorry. Moments. I guess you could say they're also pivotal moments, right? Peak yeah. moments, describe some of the natural peak moments that everybody listening and watching right now who is a leader or a colleague can make sure they get right and avoid getting wrong as it relates to the employee experience. Yeah, so this idea of peak moments, I was inspired, and there's a great TED talk by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner. He talks about the difference between the experiencing self and the remembering self. And just, I'll give you an example. So you can see over my shoulder is this wonderful mountain. That is actually Pomori in Nepal. And I trekked around in Nepal in 2001. Now, if you say, how was your trip in Nepal? My remembering self would say, oh my gosh, it was amazing. Like this mountain was amazing. Now, the experiencing self, it seems to, I have it deleted out the part when I was there and when I got Giardia and was sick like a dog, worse <laughs> than anything. I don't share that part of the story because my remembering self has deleted that out, right? So the fact is we remember certain things we don't. And so again, going back to this idea that humans are moved by emotions, what are we doing in these peak moments that people will remember? So the story of Tim, first day on the job is a huge peak moment it counts as way more than 24 hours in people's memory of what it's like. And so if we think about different moments, whether it's the interview, whether it's the job offer, whether it is the first day on the job, whether it is the first meeting with a new team, you know, how are we onboarding people to a project? Because 
these things count. We've all heard the, the expression of you only get one chance to make a first impression. How do you make the most of all those things? How do you make the most? Think about the first performance review. What does that look like? How does it feel? How do people feel when they're walking away from that? All of these peak moments make a difference in the emotional impression and memory of what people think about you. And so as leaders, we want to be intentional. I like to say that lousy leaders create cultures by default, while great leaders create culture by design. So we want to be intentional about how we are using these moments because let's face it, we can, we can put those on a process flowchart and we can start to see how this fits and go, okay, so we have these different parts of the peak moment. What are we doing to make sure that we maximize and leverage the value that is intrinsic in this moment? So again, I, I mentioned before that I come from the world of performing arts, and I think this is a good analogy. Because if you think about when you pay a ticket to see a movie or a play or a rock concert, what you want from the moment the curtain goes up until the moment you are leaving is you want to be dazzled. You want to be completely engaged and enthralled. And I think that the business world can learn a lot from the world of performing arts around this because, and you've been to enough meetings, Scott, the bar for engagement is really low. Right. So again, if what I'm suggesting here around peak moments, maybe you don't hit every single one, but if you hit two or three, how much more would that separate you from people who hit none? So starting to think about how do we engage people and thinking about how do we have them walking away from experiences going, wow, these people are amazing. And this leader I have is amazing. And I am so excited to continue working here. I really enjoyed this chapter on recognizing peak moments as leaders. You finish this list of peak moments with things like resignations and retirements and terminations. Uh, one of our Franklin Covey colleagues, Marianne Phillips, who recently retired after more than three decades in our firm, was wisely quoted as saying many things. But one of the most profound, I think, that Marianne has said is that send-offs are more for those who stay than they are for those who leave and how you treat people on their way out the door. Regardless of the circumstance, everyone is watching, and they recognize that how you treat people when they leave is probably as, if not more important, than how you treat people who stay. Alan, let's pivot with one last story, and I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. let you go, because I know you've got clients and other obligations. Yeah. You share a great story. I think I heard at one of your TEDx talks where you talk about a client that was developing a strategic plan, and one of their key points was that they needed to address an employee experience issue. I don't want to share the um, punchline there, but would you um, share that story and tell us what you think the lesson is uh, as it relates to cracking the leadership code? Sure. Yeah, true story. So this is back in 2007. So the leadership of a, of a well-known organization had this problem is they had gotten some customer survey feedback back, and what they were finding was that their customer service wasn't meeting their customers' expectations. And what they found was, and they, this all came out of a lot of research, and they put together literally an 87-page strategic transformation plan around this. Uh, what they found was that um, customers were saying that they were waiting too long in all their retail locations. So the leadership team got together. They spent all this time figuring out what they were going to do. And then they launched their bold new plan to address the fact that customers wait, were waiting too long online. No joke, this is what they did they took the clocks out of all of the lobbies of their retail location. So this is the United States Postal Service. They went through the thousands and thousands of post offices and they took all the clocks out because people were complaining they were waiting online too long. 
And as I saw that story, it was one of those shake my head moments of what were they thinking? And at the same time, I was thinking about, wow, how many of us can relate to having dealt with senior leadership in an organization who have made some similarly stupid moves, right? What are you thinking? Yeah. And so to me, it shows the, the moral of the story other than being funny and showing that the state of leadership is really poor overall, is the disconnect that leadership can have from the actual front lines. An analogy I often use when I'm working with clients is the idea of a pendulum. So if I just use my hand up here and this other hand is here, right? We swing a pendulum. So if I have the pendulum, I'm holding it up on top just a little motion on top suddenly creates a lot of swing on the bottom of a pendulum. And that top is like senior leadership. And we don't realize that the little decision that we think we're going to make because the nature of organizations is such is going to have a huge impact where we're leaving people down on the front lines, literally swinging in the wind going, what the heck are we doing? Why are we shifting like this? And so I think it's so important goes back to this idea of leading by design. Do we understand and bridge the gap between our intentions and the impact on the people that we lead? Because ultimately, we need to close that gap. I have you know, interviewed and worked with so many leaders, and I can tell you 99.9% .9 of the leaders I work with intend to do a good job. They want to be good. They want to be seen as effective. But there's a huge gap between your intention and how you're being perceived. So I talked about the fact that we're in the human to human business before the other business we're in, we are in the managing perceptions business, right? We're into managing the perceptions of the people that we lead. And when I say that, by the way, this isn't about faking it. It's about being genuine, about leading with purpose, about connecting with empathy, communicating with clarity and collaborating creatively so that people walk away going, this is amazing. And they actually think we did this ourselves. Allah Hunkins, thank you for your leadership insights today. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your mother and your grandmother's journey. That is the journey of millions of people um, that we should never forget and make sure those of us who are in power, who have power, prevent from ever happening again. It helps us in the midst of this pandemic to be a little more circumspect, right, on, as you say, our quarantining and the mild inconveniences some of us are having to go through. I appreciate your time. Your book is Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. Alain, thank you for joining us today on Leadership. Scott, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, and appreciate you listening in. Hope you enjoyed this enormously practical conversation from Allah. Highly recommend his book, and we will see you back here next week, we hope, for a new interview on leadership. Leadership.